Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Dan McAdams. He is the Henry Wade Rogers Professor of Psychology and Professor of Human Development and Social Policy at Northwestern Western University in, in the United States. Dr. McAdams is most well known for formulating a life story theory of human identity, which argues that modern adults provide their lives with a sense of unity and purpose by constructing and internalizing self-defining life stories or personal myths. He's a leader in the recent emergence within the social sciences of narrative approaches to studying human lives, approaches that place stories and storytelling at the center of human personality. His theoretical and empirical writings focus on concepts of self and identity in contemporary American society and on themes of power, intimacy, redemption, and generativity across the adult life course. He's also the author of nearly, nearly 300 scientific articles and chapters, numerous edited volumes, and seven books, including the one that we're going to focus on today, The Strange Case of Donald J. Trump, A Psychological Reckoning. So, Dr. McAdams, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ricardo. Great to be here. Okay, so I guess that today we're going to talk about one of the most prominent figures over the last years uh, worldwide, the current president of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Uh, because that's, he, he is the subject of the book I mentioned, The Strange Cage of Donald <coughs> J. Trump. And uh, the first question I would like to ask you is, wh <coughs> what was the first thing that you found so peculiar about Trump that led you to uh, study his personality and the way he behaves and other aspects of his psychology and, <coughs> and write a book about him, even though you also include uh, along the book some, some information about, uh, some, about some bits of psychology of research here and there to explain this and that aspect of human psychology. Yeah, thank you. So I, I, it, well, it all began about four years ago uh, when I was asked to write an article on Donald Trump for the Atlantic magazine. They wanted an evidence-based, objective, dispassionate, psychological profile. And at that point, four years ago, I didn't know anything about Donald Trump. I mean, almost nothing. I didn't know who his wives were. I couldn't name his children. And so I had to do a really deep dive really quick into the life and personality of Donald Trump when he was running for office. This was before he was president. And I wrote the paper, but something stuck with me uh, by the time I got to the end of the article, which appeared in June of 2016. And that is, I was able to like identify personality traits. I was able to identify certain ways he sees the world and himself, but there seemed to be a key thing missing. And the thing that was missing in my mind is the thing that I've spent my entire career studying. And that is the story or the narrative that people create about their lives. And by the end of the article, I came to the tentative realization 
that I can't find a story in Donald Trump's head about who he is. Now, what I mean by that is that almost everybody walking around out there in the world has a story in her mind or his mind about how that person came to be and where their life is going. So it includes your memories of the past. It includes your goals for the future. And you see yourself as like on this path, on, in this story. You're the main character of your own story. Donald Trump doesn't seem to have anything like that. Instead, he seems to live in the moment, right? In the current, vibrant, emotional moment. And so in the article back four years ago, I tried to imagine what this story is that he has in his head, what this narrative identity might be. And I just was frustrated and kind of gave up on it. And I thought, well, I'll just forget about it because he's not going to become president anyway. And then, of course, he did win the election. And then it started to continue to gnaw on me. And eventually that was the prompt, I think, for writing the book. I wanted to explore what I wasn't able to explore in the article, and that is the extent to which Mr. Trump has some kind of story in his mind about how he came to be and where his life is going, because those kinds of stories, they give you a sense of identity, meaning, and purpose in life. And I just felt like I couldn't understand Trump until I found the story. And then I realized there's no story there. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting because, as you said, we tend to associate uh, a narrative with something that gives a particular person's life meaning and purpose, and it's based on that narrative that they establish goals, right? And even though, as you say and explain in the book, Donald Trump doesn't seem to have a personal narrative, a personal story, he, at the same time, at least the goals that he establishes for himself, being them short-term or long-term goals, uh, they, he seemed to achieve many of them, at least, and he is a very successful person, at least according to his own personal standards, right? That's correct. I mean, it's hard to argue with his success. He's one of 45 men over a 250-year period who's become president of the United States, which is arguably the most powerful position in the world. You can't get any higher up. Uh, but there's always been, for Mr. Trump, one goal. And it's a short-term goal, although it sometimes leads to long-term achievements. And that is to win. It's always about winning. It's always about coming up as number one. And so I like to say, you know, most people who run for president of the United States, you know, if they're crazy enough to try to do something like that, right? It takes a lot of chutzpah to do it. But if you want to do that, okay, whether you're Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or back in 2016, Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders, you want to win the election so that you can become president. Mm -hmm. But Donald Trump, that's not how it worked for him. Donald Trump wanted to become president so that he could win the election. In other words, winning the election is all that mattered. Winning is all that mattered. On the first day of his presidency in January of 2017, shortly after he delivered his inaugural address, he filed in the courts, uh, signed papers so that he could run again. 
he filed his re-election campaign. He began it on day one. So it's always about winning. And the goals are usually daily, okay? So Mr. Trump wakes up in the morning and he's ready to fight. And he's ready to win the fight. But he has to have a fight. So whatever the fight is. So when he's wanting for president, he's fighting against his opponent. But not always. He could be fighting against you. He could be fighting against some American citizen who tweeted something that he didn't like. He can pick a fight with Angela Merkel in Germany or the House of Representatives leader, Nancy Pelosi, whatever it is, he fights that day and he brings it all to the fight to win that fight. He's not thinking long-term. He's not thinking about like, well, what does winning today mean for tomorrow? Because it's as if there is no tomorrow. It's all right now. And so this episodic feature of Trump's life, this idea that he's completely immersed in the immediate episode, it makes him seem very authentic and primal for many people. And I think that's appealing. I mean, he's not like a typical politician who's trying to fool you or who has some hidden agenda. There's nothing hidden. He's all there. There's nothing in his head beyond what you're seeing in the presence. And he brings it all to fight in the moment. And many of his supporters still to this day find that extraordinarily appealing and authentic and primal, almost as if he's like a force of nature that you can't pat down. At the same time, it makes him completely unable to develop any kind of long-term strategy, any kind of long-term achievement beyond winning. So again, people run for president, they win the election, they want to be president, and then they want to achieve something as president. Maybe they want to push for uh, campaign finance reform, or they want to change the economy, or they want to initiate social programs. Every president, the first 44 before Donald Trump, they had agendas. Trump, he doesn't really have one except, as he says, to make America great again, which really is a hollow promise. I mean, it doesn't have a lot of substantive meaning to it. He just wants to win. Mm -hmm. And uh, talking about winning, not only he always wants to win, but he always turns a loss into a win, even if, even if he has to somewhat or in some way twist reality, right? Correct. I mean, if you, tell, if you listen to Mr. Trump, he always wins. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be a game of golf. He will win. It could be, you know, a contest with his nephews. He will win that. It will be an election. He has to win everything. So if you go back in his life and you look at like times where it looked like he lost, he will frame them, as you suggested, as victories. So, for example, in the 1990s, that was a bad decade for him. I mean, he, he divorced his wife. He had a lot of problematic affairs with women. He got married to Marla Maples, his second wife, and it was very unhappy. Uh, and he had huge setbacks. I mean, billion-dollar setbacks in his casinos in Atlantic City, at least four bankruptcies. He doesn't see any of that as a defeat. Every one of those things was a win. And in a way, I think that's 
kind of goes to this idea that Mr. Trump doesn't have a story for, your, for his life. Because if you think about your own life, okay, you go back in time in your own life, you'll say, you can see good things and bad things. So you'll say, well, yeah, I started out great in grade school. And then my parents got divorced when I was in sixth grade. And I was sad about that. And then this good thing happened. And then I suffered this defeat. And then I came back from that, you know, so forth. That's how people build stories about their lives. Not everything is a victory. But if you win every moment, there's no story to tell, except I won this, then I won that, then I won that, then I won that. And, you know, those, it doesn't build. It doesn't build any kind of narrative arc. In Mr. Trump's mind, and I think I agree with him on this, he has always been exactly the same person. He hasn't changed. He hasn't gone through narrative transformations. He hasn't learned anything in life. He's the same guy, just bigger, older, and meaner than he was when he was like in second grade, when he punched out his music teacher because he didn't like the guy. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I mean, what I'm about to suggest, maybe it's completely wrong. And after I finish what I'm what I'm going to try to articulate, please correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, couldn't it be that Trump is so successful uh, with without having a personal narrative because he has that approach of always trying to win everything. And nowadays, for example, there are certain uh, bad habits that people have that uh, some researchers and scientists and so on are trying to tackle uh, with uh, gamification. I mean, they are trying to turn things into a game to be easier for people to um, uh, take little steps uh, to go step by step toward the certain goal. And so since Trump uh, only focuses on winning uh, whatever uh, he has to win that is in front of them in that immediate moment, uh, he sort of is sort of uh, gamifying his own life and that would be why he is so successful because he, he just thinks about, okay, now I have to win this and then I have to win that and then I have to win that. And even though he doesn't think usually long-term, he, he still gets the results. I mean, th does this make any sense? Or Yeah, I think it makes sense. It's hard to argue that Mr. Trump has not been successful in a broad sense. Again, he's president of the United States, he's a billionaire, right? But from an objective standpoint, if you look at his life, okay, you, you see that, you know, there are many examples of abject failure. And we can go beyond the bankruptcies and so forth, okay? Yeah. Uh, he, he, okay, he had two marriages that completely failed, right? He's had numerous relationships with people that have failed. He <clears throat> has been an abject failure as president when it comes to addressing the coronavirus problem. The United States is leading the world right now in a dubious category, which is number of virus infections and deaths. We're up right now at 135,000 deaths. Every day Mr. Trump wakes up, 
he thinks that the virus is going to go away. He can't fight the virus. He can't win that. And so he's just in denial about it. So I guess I wouldn't call that success from an objective standpoint. Mm -hmm. But yes, as he sees it, he will always win everything. And it raises all kinds of very interesting questions about the next election in November of 2020. So let's say that the polls turn out to be correct. And then Mr. Trump not only loses the election, but loses the election by a lot, okay? Mm -hmm. What will he do? Well, he's already preparing to delegitimize the election. And he's already saying it will be the most corrupt election in history. Hear me out. That's what he claims. So he's setting it up. And so if he loses, or when he loses the election, then he can claim that it's illegitimate. And then, well, like, what happens? Do we have a constitutional crisis? Does Mr. Trump refuse to leave the White House? It's hard to know. Mm -hmm. And he will probably blame someone other than himself, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's part, that's part of the game plan. I mean, all along, he's done that his whole life. And so along the way, he has, you know, this is another sign of failure, I guess you could say. I mean, like, do, he probably has more enemies than almost anybody on the planet, okay? Now, Donald Trump takes pride in that, okay? I mean, once they asked him, Mr. Trump, who's the best person in the world? And he said, my father is the best. He goes, okay, who's the worst person in the world? And Trump goes, worst? There's millions of worse. They're all horrible. I hate them all. There's so many scum. There's so many horrible people in the world. I, would, I can't even begin to list them, okay? Now, it's kind of funny, but at the same time, that is how he sees it, okay? Mr. Trump's philosophy of life, as he told it to an interviewer 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, is that man is the most vicious of all animals, and life is a series of battles ending in victory or defeat, okay? He sees it as a series of victories, but along the way, he has accumulated all these vicious enemies who hate him so much, it's unbelievable. So I don't know if you want to call that a success or not. Uh, he has managed to prevail. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and when you say that he's sort of an episodic man, I mean, that he lives his life as if it were one episode after the other. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, like, it's more like a cartoon series for small children, like, for example, the ones where there's a superhero and then in each episode there's one particular villain and, and sometimes you can even watch the episodes in a random order because it doesn't matter. It's always the same uh, hero and a different villain and there's no continuity there. There's no background story. It's just the hero fighting the villain in that particular episode because if, even for an episodic man, I mean, he could still have a narrative if it were, if it was a series, like a series for adult people that usually have a set of characters with a background story that develop relationships among them. And there's uh, some sort of continuity and some sort of narrative there, right? Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, I think you said it perfectly. Uh, and it is like, and actually, Mr. Trump might agree with you. 
Okay, that's kind of how he sees life, and he didn't see a problem with that. So uh, early on, I guess this was actually before he entered the White House, but in, in January, during the transition period before he became president, January of 2017, he, got, he gathered together some aides, and he told them, listen, folks, this is what it's going to be like when I'm president. Every day is going to be like I'm a superhero, and I'm fighting against the enemies of our country. And every day, therefore, will be like a reality TV show, okay? Now, you analogized it, Ricardo, to a, a children's uh, cartoon episodes. And reality TV shows sometimes have that kind of nature, too. Each one is a self-contained kind of unit. You play out that particular show, like The Apprentice, back when Mr. Trump was the star of that show. Uh, and, you know, it, it plays out, it's done, and then we go to the next. Okay, now that, you know, those, those shows did have a kind of chronology to them. You watch them in order. But in classic episodic fashion, like take, for example, the famous American TV sitcom Seinfeld from the 1990s, I believe, you could watch those shows in any order. They are all, each one is a self-contained monad. It's, it's in and of itself, like 20 minutes of humor right there. So Mr. Trump's life, I think he sees it that way as one episode of Seinfeld after another, except that in Seinfeld, it was funny and fun. It, for Mr. Trump, it's tough. It's mean. It's, I've got to win right now. And so it sounds ruthless and it sounds depraved. But at the same time, there's something about it that's heroic, actually. Because I, think, I mean, Mr. Trump is a little bit like a, a boxer. Okay, so you've got a boxer in the ring. And he's in the ring for three minutes, fighting as hard as he can against his opponent. And then after three minutes, the, the bell rings, the opponents go to their separate corners and they sit for a minute. Then they get up and they start it all over again. Now, in a normal boxing round, there's, you know, matches like 10 or 15 rounds and then a decision is made. In Mr. Trump's life, there are thousands and thousands of rounds. And it's as if after each one, the referee says, you won, okay, next round. And then he wakes up and starts it all over again. So you know, think about what it's like to live like that, okay? You're constantly being attacked, constantly, all the time. You can't put your hands down. You'll get knocked out immediately. Mr. Trump always has to be on guard. He always has to be fighting. It would wear me out. I couldn't last more than a week or two living that way. I think just about everybody else on the planet, sooner or later, it would wear them out. He's a special kind of creature, almost superhuman in this regard. It never wears him out. And moreover, he never gets tired of the central figure, who of course is himself, right? Because you have to win each moment to bolster the self. And, you know, for, I mean, Trump gives new meaning to the term narcissism. I mean, it's like it, it takes the word and squares it, puts it on steroids. He's extraordinarily narcissistic. But, you know, most narcissists, you know, they kind of create a story for their lives. And, you know, they enjoy the limelight. They love looking at themselves and so forth. But maybe not 24 hours a day. You know, maybe they would go on vacation occasionally. Maybe they take a year off. Maybe they go do something else. But Mr. Trump, Every day, it's brand new. There's my face again, my big, beautiful orange face right there. There's my name again. There's my building again. Here's my victory again. And like, 
enough already. I'd get sick of that. I mean, like, okay, maybe one day I'll step away and let somebody else win. No, he never gets sick of it. It's almost as if you're, you're refreshing the computer each morning when he wakes up or you're refreshing his brain and he doesn't even remember what happened yesterday and isn't thinking too much about the future. Now, of course, he has memory, you know, he does remember, but it doesn't have any function in his daily life. Mm-hmm. And because he doesn't think too much about the past, or at least the way that common people, let's say, think about the past, to, and they use it to define themselves as a person, he thinks more of himself as a character, as we've already alluded to here. Uh, it, there's also another pecu- peculiarity about him, that is, he is inconsistent in his behavior toward other people. I mean, he has different moralities in different days, even toward the same person, correct? correct. That's exactly right. I, if you live day by day and day two has different ground rules than day one, then there's no expectation that there's going to be consistency. This drives people crazy about Mr. Trump. Still, to this day, three and a half years into his presidency, everybody's trying to figure out Why does he do what he does? We can't predict what he's going to do. And it's just like freaking people out. That's because they're assuming he's just like everybody else, that he lives according to a story about his life. And that therefore, you know, if he did something on Monday that alienated this person, on Tuesday he would remember that and that would influence his behavior in some way or another. And that there would be some kind of underlying principle or you know whatever that kind of guides his behavior from one day to the next but the only principle there is is winning that particular day and so you don't expect any kind of continuity so on monday he has a certain kind of morality if you will you know on tuesday he has a different kind on wednesday he's not using moral categories i mean the fact is you know, people talk about him like this, but they use different language than I use. They don't say he's the episodic man. They'll say he's transactional. Okay, that's a favorite term to say. Mr. Trump is a transactional president. What does that mean? That means that every interaction for him is like a deal or a transaction. He's trying to get something from you and he'll give you something and then he moves on to the next. That's true. But when you are president and you have transactions, let's say you're having a transaction with uh, uh Trudeau, the head of Canada, you're dealing with Canadians today. Um, you, you have repeated transactions with those people. You know, it's not like selling real estate in New York where like, okay, I'm going to sell you something, Ricardo, but I'm never going to see you again. So here, buy this building. I cheat you out of whatever the money is. You buy the building and then I move on. We never see each other. It's not, it, you're, there's no re- repetition, but there is repetition with the leaders of the country, uh, of other countries, with diplomats, with political organizations, and with the American people who are repeatedly, you know, part of, of this ongoing, of this ongoing kind of scenario. And so, yeah, I mean, in the given moment, what is truth for Mr. Trump? What is, whatever it takes to win the moment is what is true. And so he'll just say ridiculous things that nobody believes, like on his first day in office. He, he had his inaugural address. 
there were thousands of people there. But the aerial photographs showed that it was a significantly smaller crowd than the crowds of some of the past inaugurations, such as President Obama's inauguration. He refused to believe that. He said, no, that is wrong, and you are lying. And he, to this day, will defy logic and reality and say, no, I had the biggest crowd ever. So he lies not only on things that are debatable, he lies about the fundamental physics and chemistry of the real world. Tomorrow he might say, you know what, folks? The sun, it comes up in the west and it goes to the east. And everybody else will say, well, no, but that's not what the astronomers say. That's not what the, 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 the experts say. Because no, I know. It comes up in the west, it goes to the east. And you know what? 30% of Americans will believe it. Well, if Mr. Trump says it, it's got to be true. And they'll just go right along with it. He's shameless about it in, in terms of lying right to your face. And he's able to do that because tomorrow he doesn't even remember it. It's not relevant. You know, we've never had anybody like this in the Oval Office. We've never had anybody so blatantly shameless that they'll do anything to win because most people worry, oh my God, what are they going to think about me? What is history going to think about me? What are they going to think about me next year? What's my family going to think about me? Trump doesn't care about any of that. He just wants to win the moment. History be damned. Mm -hmm. And he wants to win the moment, but he looks at everything as a deal, right? Could you tell as a deal to win. Yeah, as a deal. So, so he approaches things as deals. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So, so again, as I mentioned, four years ago when I started my work on Trump, I was completely ignorant about the man, as I suggested. So I thought, well, what's the first thing to do? I'll read The Art of the Deal. I'd heard of that book, right? And I knew it was a famous book. I knew he wrote it in the 80s. And it's about deal making. It's, it's the art of it. So I thought, well, he'll tell us about his expertise in making deals. It'll be about negotiating things. It'll be about uh, how to strategize in deals, something like that. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a deal maker myself. But I thought I would learn something about deals. So I started reading the book. I read the whole darn thing, actually, like overnight. And I realized this isn't about deals. This is about power. This is about winning and squelching and beating to a pulp, whoever your opponent is. If you look at the basic tenets of the book, he's got a number of these sort of like principles of deal making. They're all about killing your opponent, okay? Smashing your opponent to obliterines, intimidating your opponent. And indeed, the principles, they don't just apply to real estate deals. They apply to life, okay? Because for Mr. Trump, that's what life is. So he might have called the book The Art of My Life, and my life being continual warfare and winning at all costs, because that's what that book's about. And that's like, okay, mid-80s, 35 years ago or whatever, whenever it was written. And uh, those principles, if you will, they still inform his everyday life. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said at a certain point there, he has a very bleak and dark view of the world and humanity, but that seems to excite him. I mean, the, it seems that it's something that provokes him to uh, want to win even more and to fight other people even more, correct? Again, you hit, it on the, you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, 
he has a very dark view of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, again, man is the most vicious of all animals, and life is a series of battles ending in victory or defeat. Uh, where does that come from? Right? How do you get something like that? Now, now, it's, it's a little surprising, because if you look at Donald Trump's early life, he grew up in the lap of luxury, right? Mm -hmm. There weren't any vicious attacks on his house. He lived in a nine-bedroom nine mansion in uh, Queens. There was a Rolls Royce and a Cadillac parked out in front for Fred and Mary Trump, his mother and fa father and mother. Uh, he, had, he went to find schools. He was safe, right? He his dad was a tough guy, but there's no, uh, there's no evidence of child abuse. There's no evidence of crime, you know? Like, so like, where does a guy get this idea that the world is a vicious place? Now there's lots of factors that go into it. And I mentioned Fred Trump. I mean, he, he had a pretty dark view of the world too. And I think he passed that on to Donald and he saw Donald as his killer and his king. Uh, and that was, uh, those were terms of endearment in, Mr. in Fred Trump's mind. Uh, but I think the main factor that has convinced Donald Trump that the world is a vicious place is that <clears throat> as he goes through life, he makes it like that, okay? So I'm imagining second grade, right? And Mr. Trump, little Donnie Trump, is going to school at the Q Forest Elementary School, and it's 7.30 in the morning, and the kids are coming in, and everything's peaceful. Everybody's pretty happy. They're sleepy, but they're pretty happy. And in walks little Don Trump. And he immediately starts to cause trouble. He immediately starts pulling some girl's pigtails or shoving some guy or baiting somebody. And then what happens? What happens is that people get mad and they respond against him. And he notices that and he goes, whoa, the world is tough. People are out to get me because in fact they are. But why? Because he started it. Because he gets the ball rolling whenever he walks into a situation of any kind, from grade school onward, whether we're talking about sports or friendships or marriage or business or the presidency, he goes in there all guns a-blazing. And then he's, oh my goodness, so surprised because people are out to get me. Well, yeah, because you started it by going out to get them. So I think there's this personality psychologist, they talk about this as a, it's almost like it's a conspiracy between your genetic temperament on the one hand and the environment you live in on the other. He was born with a temperament that was fairly aggressive and socially dominant, quite antagonistic little kid. And then he would bring that out in other people. So his environment becomes reinforcing of that temperament and it becomes like, a vicious cycle over time where aggression breeds aggression, which breeds more aggression. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, here you are. Yeah. So just before we keep on exploring Trump's personality traits, uh, uh, since you mentioned genetics and 
particularly also life experiences that people go through. Let's talk a, li let's talk a little bit about the three-level model of personality that you have developed. So it includes three aspects. One of them we've already talked about <laughs> at the very beginning, that is the narrative identity, that is the stories that give a life a sense of unity, meaning, and purpose. Then it also includes personality traits, and uh, you use the big five model of personality here, right? Yeah, yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about that. Thank you for bringing that up. So the way I think of those uh, of development, personality development, is in terms of layers, okay? So we okay. start out or at the first layer, the first line of development as babies, and we move into the world in childhood and adolescence, and there's this line of development that I call the social actor, okay? We are all actors in society, and what determines how we play our roles? Well, many things do, but among the most important are the traits. You mentioned the big five traits. Personality psychologists <clears throat> have been studying traits for 70 or 80 years, and they've come to a consensus that the basic dispositional differences between social actors in terms of how they perform their roles and perform their emotion <clears throat> can be summarized in five basic categories. Extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, neuroticism, and openness. I said them quickly. The easy way to remember them is the word ocean, the English word ocean, O-C-E-A-N. O is openness, C is conscientiousness, E is extroversion, A is agreeableness, and N is neuroticism. Now, we could talk about all five, but, but in the case of Mr. Trump, you have a strong development of two of them, and that is extroversion and agreeableness. Extroversion, it refers to the extent to which you are socially dominant, enthusiastic, high energy, gregarious. Mr. Trump, he out-extroverts everybody. He dominates the room. He talks all the time. He has as much extroversion probably as any president we've ever had. Most presidents have to have a fair amount of that in order to become president, uh, but there's differences, okay? I mean, Obama was much more introverted, for example. George W. Bush was fairly extroverted, but I think Trump out-extroverts everybody. So he's got this social dominance, extroversion. You combine that with agreeableness, but now agreeableness on the low end. And agreeableness, which is a really kind of wimpy word, it's not a great word, but uh, it really refers to the extent to which a person is compassionate, caring, empathic, nice, conforming, humble, well, Mr. Trump is the opposite of that. He's on the low end of agreeableness, so much so that I don't think there's any other politician like him, in the United States at least, in terms of being disagreeable. It's a weird combination in a president to be so socially dominant and so disagreeable. I actually can't think of any president who comes close to matching that combination. If you look at Bill Clinton, he was pretty high in extroversion, but pretty high in agreeableness. If you, uh, if you, if you look at Obama, he was kind of introverted, moderately agreeable. But to have somebody who's high in E and low in A is, is a weird combination because you've got somebody who's a socially dominant actor who's out there to just, you know, basically bowl over everybody with no concern for the collateral damage that may occur along the way. We typically expect our presidents to be kind of nice, to have a little bit of compassion and empathy 
up until the current can't one. Okay, so high extroversion, low agreeableness. You could say that's sort of his trait profile. We can talk about other ones, but I think that that kind of describes him as a social actor. But it doesn't tell us what Mr. Trump wants or what he values in life. You know, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism, those are about behavior. They're not about your inner wants and desires. To get to that stuff, you've got to go to a second layer called the person as motivated agent. Okay, so social actor is one, motivated agent is two. And this starts up around age six, seven, somewhere in there, where kids start to develop little goals for their life, little things they want, okay? And as we grow up and become adults, our goals enlarge, our values begin to emerge. And so there are certain things we really care about, certain things we want, certain things we fear in life. So you ask yourself, well, with respect to Mr. Trump, okay, what is his motivational agenda? And it's really simple. It's to win by, and thereby glorify the self, to glorify himself above everything. So narcissism is at the core of his motivational profile. Right? So you've got extroversion and agreeableness at the first level. You've got flaming narcissism and the desire to win, 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 win at the second level with nothing else there. No religious orientation, no political values, really. No ethical values, no moral framework. It's all stripped away. It's all just the self and narcissism. And then you go to the third level, which we've been talking about, what I call the autobiographical author. Okay, you go from actor to agent to author. And what that means is that in your teenage years and after, you begin creating a story for your life, as we've discussed, a narrative identity. And that story is layered over your traits and your goals and values. And this story enables you to understand what those traits and values and goals are all about. It puts your life in perspective. And as we have suggested, it's as if the third layer doesn't exist for Mr. Trump. There is no story. He doesn't think of life that way. He doesn't create a narrative to give his life meaning and purpose. So in some ways, he's simpler than most psychological cases, really. I mean, you've got a couple traits going, and you've got narcissism in the moment, and that's like all there, and everybody else is thinking, but yeah, what else is there, right? And like nothing else is there. And, and the fact that there's so little there, and it's so powerful, gives him this primal force, and also makes you think, in a way, you know, it's, it's almost as if he's not a fully formed person. He's like an exaggeration of certain things, which makes him more than a person, like a superhero, but at the same time, less than a person too. Because like we expect persons to have doubts and we expect them to have a moral agenda and we expect them to have conflicts in their head and a story and he didn't have any of that stuff. There's none of that there. Uh, and I think he knows that. And it doesn't bother him because in a way, he's okay not being a person. He likes the idea that he's like a superhero, that he's different from everybody else. And finally, I think many of his supporters, they see him that way too. They're not, you know, they're, they don't have the three levels of personality in their head, but they're noticing 
that, you know, he's not like the rest of us, okay? But that's okay. I like that. It's kind of like he's a, um, a, he's all fight. He's a fighter. He's like a force. And he's on my side. He's fighting for me to win. So, so what if he can't do empathy? So what if he doesn't have an inner life? I don't care about that. I just want him to get out there and kick butt, right? And that's what he does. He fights. And it's like he's not a person. And I'm okay because I'm not looking for somebody who's a fully formed human being. I want somebody like an attack dog uh, or something really primal, uh, almost as if he were like a chimpanzee, uh, the alpha chimp who rules the roost, who runs the colony through sheer force and intimidation. So if he does something bad, like, you know, pays off a porn star so that she won't talk about their relationship right before the election, or if he were to do something, like he said once, like, I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose any support. And yeah, that might be. He would lose some support, but he wouldn't lose too much. Okay, they, in fact, CNN did this. They asked a bunch of Trump supporters, like, what if Mr. Trump pulled out a gun and shot somebody dead in the middle of Fifth Avenue? And the supporters thought for a while, they go, well, what did that person do? Mr. Trump must have had a reason, right? Like, they will excuse his faults because they don't hold him to the same standards they hold themselves to and everybody else because he's not really a person. He's like something else. He's a force. Some white Christian evangelicals believe he's a force of God. They see him as God's instrument and that he's here in some kind of cosmic battle to win for Christianity, even though he's not a Christian. Maybe. I mean, if you see him that way, then you can excuse anything he does. And they do. Mm -hmm. So you said in terms of the big five that high extroversion and low agreeableness are the two traits that characterize him the best. But in, in terms of neuroticism, uh, isn't it the case that he tends to be, at least in certain situations, for example, when he is confronted with a lie or on a TV debate or when he is discussing with someone, he tends sometimes to get uh, very easily angry or aggressive uh, and things like that? That's true. Now, aggressiveness is a funny thing because it, it loads both on neuroticism and agreeable. In fact, mm -hmm. more so on agreeable. So blatant aggression is and hostility and malevolence that tends to be associated with low agreeableness. But you are correct about neuroticism to a certain extent. Uh, the defining feature of high neuroticism is uh, experiencing a lot of negative emotion. Okay, so that would include anger. And Mr. Trump experiences a tremendous amount of anger. Okay, that would be not being able to control your anger and your rage and so forth. Uh, but it also includes emotions that Mr. Trump claims he never experiences, like sadness and depressiveness or anxiety and fear. Now, it's, you can, it's a, it's a toss-up. Some people will say, you know, he's defending against his fear. And that might be right. That might be right. But it's almost impossible to imagine Mr. Trump being depressed or Mr. Trump wallowing in anxiety 
and therefore being unable to act. I think he's probably moderately high on neuroticism because certain features of neuroticism do play out, as you suggest, the difficulty in controlling his volatile emotions. But there are other negative emotions, sadness, fear, guilt, shame that he never experiences. And people high in neuroticism have a lot of guilt, sadness, and shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, one of the criticisms that is put forth many times by Trump's opponents is that uh, he is a stupid person. I mean, because many times he, he blatantly uh, says something that is wrong. I mean, he is very ignorant in terms of many different subjects, even political ones. And since he's the president of the United States, he should know better. But is he really a stupid person even when he lies and he sometimes knows that he's lying, probably? Yeah, I think we need to make a distinction here. I, I don't talk about this too much in the book because I kind of try to stay away from the topic of intelligence. But since you brought it up, I think there's an important distinction. Okay, so there, there, there's intelligence, what, what psychologists call fluid, fluid intelligence. And this yeah. refers to your ability to reason and, to, and your ability to, do, to think quickly and solve problems quickly and, you know, like uh, whatever the problems are, math problems or whatever. And then there's crystallized intelligence. And crystallized intelligence is really knowledge, like how much information, useful information do you have in your head? When it comes to Mr. Trump, fluid intelligence is probably average, maybe a little above average. Mr. Uh, Fred Trump, his father, used to say, Donald is the smartest guy I know. And Donald's first wife, Ivana, talked a lot about Trump's intelligence. He's a very smart man. And of course, Trump calls himself a stable genius. Okay. So all three of those people, Fred, Ivana, and Donald Trump himself, suggest are saying that, you know, Trump is no dummy, that he's able to like, you know, think quickly and, and, and do that kind of stuff. I, I, I think, you know, they're exaggerating, but, but he's not stupid when it comes to that criteria. But when it comes to knowledge, he knows about a few things. He's a specialist. He knows about power. He knows how to win. The art of the deal is brilliant, really, when it comes to the art of power. But he doesn't know hardly anything else. And it's shocking. It is unbelievably shocking. I mean, this stuff comes out all the time. He doesn't know anything about history, right? He doesn't know anything about what previous presidents have done. He has no idea what is in the Constitution of the United States. But let's put those things aside. He thought, he argued, or he suggested at one point, that, well, we could cure the coronavirus by just having people drink disinfectants, okay? And, like, he wasn't kidding. It was an idea that popped into his head. He is shockingly ignorant of so much of the world. And you wonder, how is this possible? He's got a college education. He's 74 years old. He's lived. He's had all these different experiences. And it's as if very little of it sticks. And the reason, I guess, that very little of it sticks goes back to what I keep saying again and again. It's always about the moment 
whatever you need in the moment to win. That's all that matters. So you don't accumulate knowledge, really, unless it's about winning in the moment. And secondly, Mr. Trump isn't interested in anything except himself. And then he's all in. He is more interested in himself than any other person is interested in any other topic at all. Okay, so like I love psychology. I'm interested in psychology. Okay, I love it this much. Okay, <laughs> Mr. Trump loves himself this much. Nobody loves anything that much. Okay, he loves himself this much to the exclusion of everything else, with the possible exception of his three older kids, which I think he kind of loves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now I'm going to ask you a two-part question. The, the first part is, do you think that Trump suffers from some uh, mental illness or mental disease? What's the second part? <laughs> the, 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 the second part is, uh, if, uh, if it really matters for, for the... For, for, the for, for the presidency, because, I mean, there's that question that people, that there were many moments during the campaign and even when he became president where people on television uh, asked psychologists, for example, to try to, try to diagnose him. And uh, the second part of my question would be if you think that that's cr uh, something that people should do, that people yeah, should sure. diagnose a president uh, on public television or whatever. I, I mean, diagnose in front of the electorate, let's say. Well, I'm glad I asked you for the second part. Let me answer the, address the second part first, and then we'll yeah. circle back to the first. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's little doubt that many presidents, or at least a fair number, have suffered from one form of mental illness or another. Take Abraham Lincoln, for example, the great, arguably the greatest president in American history, guided us through the Civil War, emancipated the slaves. Um, people have written that he probably suffered from what we would today call um, chronic depression. I mean, like really serious clinical depression. He would be treated for it today. In Lincoln's case, his depression, what he called melancholia, which enveloped his life and increased throughout his presidency, it weirdly helped him grow his empathy and understand negative emotions in other people. Lyndon Johnson probably suffered from what we would call a narcissistic personality disorder. You could probably say the same with Trump. Uh, I don't know if it hurt Johnson or helped Johnson, to tell you the truth, um, but he certainly, you know, suffered from that kind of thing. Other presidents have been labeled with these psychiatric diagnoses. Okay, so what do I think about that? I think those psychiatric diagnoses don't matter much, to tell you the truth. I mean, unless a president is like floridly schizophrenic and is having hallucinations and delusions, and I don't think even Trump has that. Uh, I, I just don't think psychiatric diagnoses are relevant, to tell you the truth. Is Mr. Trump suffering from a narcissistic personality disorder, which is a diagnostic category? Do, it, does he have, by contrast, or similarly, an antisocial personality disorder? Maybe, maybe, but so what? It doesn't matter. 
There's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't have a narcissistic personality disorder. Moreover, what are these things, these so-called mental disorders? They're not like cancer or COVID virus or the measles. There's not like a drug you can take to cure them. They're, they, they don't, they, they're behavioral and they're, they're all wrapped into the kind of person you are. And so I, I am not in favor of psychiatrists or psychologists making diagnostic pronouncements about public officials, whether it's on television or in books or whatever. And I, I studiously avoided it in my book, The Strange Case. I was not interested in offering diagnoses of any kind. I don't think they're helpful. They don't disqualify a person from public office. And for me, most importantly, they're not interesting. He's way stranger than any category you can find in the diagnostic manual, right? So let's take the narcissistic one, narcissistic personality disorder. You know, it's, it's not very common, but, but some psychiatrists will say, okay, that person has that. And it, it, it's got a bunch of criteria. Trump seems to manifest all of them. Grandiosity, uh, you know, obsession with the self. There's like nine of them. I can't remember what they are all right now. Okay, so um, let's say that he meets all nine criteria. There is one problem. Uh, for, for you to have any of these personality disorders, like for a psychiatrist to diagnose you with that, they have to show that the disorder has compromised your ability to function in the world, okay? That it's causing you irreparably harm and distress. Well, Donald Trump is the 45th president of the United States. He's done pretty well, as you pointed out early on in this interview. He's extraordinarily successful. He's married. His kids don't hate him. He's kind of successful. So I don't know if I would say he suffers from a personality disorder, but okay, even if he did, suffer from that kind of thing. Even if he, we say he's got a narcissistic personality structure and it's clinically significant. Still, what's really interesting to me about that is the episodic nature of it. And that's not part of the diagnosis. Most people out there who would call themselves, or we call narcissists, right? They love to tell you stories about their life. They are working on a glorious and grand narrative identity about how they overcame this and then this horrible thing happened and they overcame that and then they were beaten down and then they, they transcended that. So, you know, if anything, highly narcissistic people, including those suffering from this so-called disorder, they love to create narrative identities to give their lives meaning and purpose. Oftentimes those stories are like too good to be true. But Donald Trump doesn't even have a story in his head. He can't talk about that at all. He'll just give you a label. He'll say, I'm a stable genius, or I'm a winner. I always win. Mm -hmm. That's pretty weird, right? You don't find that in the diagnostic manual, not having a narrative identity. It's not considered a mental illness, and it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. It's just damn strange. And it's really interesting to me because I think it helps shed light on why he does what he does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, I mean, that circles all the way back to the beginning of our conversation because, I mean, throughout our talk, we've been mentioning several different psychological traits that Trump has, and we've 
we frame them in a negative way most of the time. I mean, like the fact that he's a narcissist, the fact that he, he deals with everything like if it's a deal that he's making, uh, the fact that he doesn't have a personal narrative, the fact that he's ignorant in many domains that a president, and particularly the president of the most powerful country in the world, should be competent about, uh, and things like that. But uh, still, as I said, and you mentioned it also, uh, he's a very successful person. Just the fact that he's a billionaire is a big deal just by itself. So, I mean, when we say that these traits that he has are negative. Are they really all negative? And when we say they are negative, they are negative to whom? To, to himself, to other people, to the American people, to people with whom he has some sort of intimate relationship or what exactly? That's a great question. So I, I get, you know, I've gotten a a lot of reactions to my book uh, on the strange case and I got a lot of reactions back four years ago to my uh, article in the Atlantic on Trump's personality and um, when I get letters from Trump supporters and I do often get emails from Trump supporters they usually say something like this you nailed it yeah that's what we like about it he's fighting for us he wants to win He's all there now. Give me the episodic man, right? Um, now, they don't all say that. Uh, but then on the other side of the coin, many Trump detractors, many liberals will say, oh, my God, I hated what you wrote because you humanized him. You made him into a human being in some ways, and we don't want to do that. So it, it turns out that I think you're right. I mean, these, these terms that I tend to use negative language for aren't all negative. It is certainly the idea of the episodic man goes both ways. I really believe that his ability to bring his entire being into the moment to win the moment is something that many people find very compelling. They see it as a key to his charisma, right? It's helped him in business. He's a fighter. I mean, he's been down before, you know, and he's had some real bad things happen in his life and he gets up in the morning and he just gets out there and fights. So like, I mean, that's, that's a positive characteristic. A lot of that comes from the extroversion, but high extroversion is mainly a good thing, and it, it, it's connected to lots of positive outcomes and so forth. Low agreeableness, yeah, it's bad, but it's mainly bad for others, right? The targets of your disagreeableness and so on. So, I, I, yeah, I think you could put a positive spin on some of this, uh, even the narcissism. I do think, though, that if we look at the role of a president of the United States, that uh, it's becoming clear and clearer, even to some of Mr. Trump's supporters, that he's woefully inadequate. And that these inadequacies stem not from his belief system, because he doesn't have one, not from his political background and his commitments, because he doesn't have any of that, but they, they come from his, the vacuum inside his head where we would expect there to be empathy, moral principles, guidelines, some kind of perspective on history. 
you look at the virus right now. Why are Americans having such a hard time with this? Most other advanced countries have managed more or less to uh, manage the, the, the coronavirus. Part of the reason is we, we don't have a leader who believes in the virus, really. Trump has said, I think the virus is a temporary moment in time. We'll wake up one day and it will be gone. Think about what the virus is like for Mr. Trump. I mean, it's the ultimate opponent whom he can never win against. All of his opponents to date have been people who he can beat down in the moment. The virus, it's not a person. It doesn't respond to insults and intimidation, right? And it's in it for the long term. The virus is part of a long-term story, and Trump lives in the moment, outside of story, outside of narrative time. He, you can't beat the virus. Now, maybe no president would be successful, but Mr. Trump is uniquely ill-equipped to lead the nation during one of the most perilous periods in our history. This is a defining moment, I believe, in American history. It's awesome in that regard. Mr. Trump was really fortunate. For three years, not much happened, to tell you the truth, except stuff he caused on the world stage. There weren't any big crises. And now we've got a crisis that's threefold, right? It's medical, it's economic, and then you have the upsurge of race relation issues in the United States that are kind of connected to this with the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter movement. And these three things, right? Race, health, and the economy, suddenly it's a humongous crisis. Trump has, doesn't have a clue what to do. Any other president, any of them, Reagan, Obama, George Washington, any of them, the worst and the best, would have been able to rally the country. They would have gone on national television the way Angela Merkel did or the way the, uh, the leader in New Zealand did or Australia. And they would say, listen, folks, this is the biggest challenge we're going to face in a long time. We need a national mobilization to fight this as if it were a war, as if we were attacked by a foreign country who has as much power as we have. Well, it is like that. And what did Trump do? He is still doing the same thing, ignoring it, going along as if it didn't exist, because it's not about him, it's long-term. And he can only do things that are about him short-term. So, you know, he's gonna, if you wanna talk about failure, I mean, I, I, unless there's some kind of born-again experience he has tomorrow, he's gonna go down in history as the greatest failure of any president, I think, not the, I'm not saying that because I don't like him. I'm not saying that out of any political persuasion. I'm just looking at our current moment and seeing how America has been brought to its knees. Uh, we're not winning anything right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've already mentioned some of the main reasons why Trump is not a competent president and you also said that even many of his supporters are starting to rally against him and things like that. So my last question will be not about Trump himself, but um, I mean, at least last time I saw um, his approval ratings were still high. I don't know now with the coronavirus situation if it went down a little bit or not, but 
at least last time I saw they were high. So uh, why do you think, uh, even though his supporters know that he is the way he is, and you say that uh, some of them contact you and say that you nailed it, that that's exactly how he is, why is it the case that they still support him? Sure. Well, when it comes to approval ratings, I think, Ricardo, you're, you're right, but not completely right. Okay, so like, okay. if you want to talk about his approval ratings among Republicans, yes, they are as high as anybody's have ever been. For a while, he was like over 90% approval rate among Republicans, okay? That's come down a little, but not that much. So he's still really high with Republicans. But with Democrats and Independents, he's abysmal. It's really low and it's gone down. So if you look at the overall approval rating of Mr. Trump in the United States from the country at large, but if you look at polling on that, going back really to his first day in office to the current time, it's surprisingly low but steady. It's been below 50. He's never broken 50%. No other president, by the way, in modern polling history has not gotten above 50%. But he never, he's never been above 50, okay? But he's never been much below 40. He's been like right around 45% approval rating, 46, 43, 44, you know, like, like that. And now it's started to dip and a little bit. And in a recent poll, it was at 39. But that, it may pop back up uh, a little. It's never going to get above 50%. It never has. It never will. Whereas every other president's approval rating is typically track things that are going on. So take George W. Bush. Uh, after 9-11, his approval ratings skied up to like 90%. They went down, they went up. Clinton's went down and up. Uh, but Trump's have been below 50% the whole time and weirdly steady. So uh, I don't, I mean, he won last time, uh, even though uh, he got 3 million fewer votes than his opponent, Hillary Clinton. Uh, he, he still won in the Electoral College, but the polls right now have him down in, in, in many states. And so, you know, it's possible that he could make a comeback. There is, and and you're, you're right about the, the supporters. I mean, there is a core, a strong core of support. Mr. Trump's, Mr. Trump's supporters love him way more than Mr. Biden's supporters love him. But Mr. Biden has way more supporters at this point, I think. Uh, so if, you know, if you could grade the election on intensity, <laughs> then, you know, each Trump voter gets you get like 10 points, right? 10 votes because they love him so much. Uh, probably about 30, 35% of the electorate will go down swing with Mr. Trump. They believe anything he'll say. They will not accept his defeat. If there is a defeat in November, they will refuse to accept the new president. Uh, we could have chaos here. We could have civil unrest, dramatic civil unrest, when Trump supporters refuse to accept his defeat, when maybe Mr. Trump refuses to leave the White House for weeks and weeks, although I think he eventually will. Uh, and this, this has just never happened before in the U.S. Yeah, so those supporters are really strong. Uh, and what's going to happen to them? You know, they're not going away. And so after Mr. Trump is no longer president, uh, what are the 30% of Americans who support him to the dying end? Who are they going to support? What are they going to do? Uh, I, I don't really know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so Dr. McAdams, let's end the interview here. We've already covered a lot of ground, a lot of the things that you cover in your, in your book about Donald Trump. And people, again, the book is The Strange Case of Donald J. Trump, A Psychological Reckoning. Just before we go, Dr. McAdams, would you like to mention what are some of the best places on the internet for people to find your work? Uh just Google me. I mean, I, you know, uh, there's a, a lot of interviews that I've done. Uh, uh, a lot of them are on other topics uh, before I got involved in Mr. Trump. Uh, I, I, I'm very proud of the book, uh, The Strange Case of Donald J. Trump. I think even if you're not that interested in Mr. Trump, although I think everybody is almost, uh, you can, there's a lot in there about kind of psychology and development. Uh, so I, I, I do think it's the best thing I've done, but, uh, you know, I, I, more generally, I've spent a lot of my career studying how people have created stories for their lives. And um, uh, most of that is written chapters and, you know, books and so forth. Uh, so I think that's my suggestion. I'm kind of old fashioned. I, I, I write books. I give interviews. I don't tweet. Um, I'm not on Facebook. Uh, I don't do a lot of social media. Uh, I know it's terrible. My kids tell me I should do more of that. My students tell me I should do more of that. They're all right. They're all correct. And yet um, I, I just don't manage to do it. But I'm very grateful for this interview. And I thought your questions were really fabulous. Yeah, thank you for your kind words. And maybe uh, I would be happy to have you again on the channel, maybe to talk about, to dig a little bit deeper into the your three-level model of personality and other aspects of your work. So I leave the invitation on the table, Dr. McAdams. And thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. It was a pleasure to everyone. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. And to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. And I also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and main supporters, Karin Litzke and Blanchett, Peruga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klimpi, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Marco Neves, Max Belby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spigny, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Yevon Bodrenko, 
Paul Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Labrant, Os Oslem Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, Sardus France, David Sloan Wilson, and Asila Deza Araújo, my producers, Isar Weber, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Dr. Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Verge, Vega Gidi, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all. <laughs>